If what the prosperity preachers say is true about what we are to pray, then Jesus is terrible at praying. To quote the old uh, blasphemer, Kenneth Copeland, Give me the money! If what he says is true, then Jesus is terrible at praying. If what Joel Osteen says is true, God desires your best life now. Big houses, big cars, big paychecks, fame and glory. Then Jesus is the worst prayer that ever prayed. For what Jesus prays in his final hour on earth is entirely different than what the health and wealth and word of faith and prosperity preachers tell you to pray for. Of course, we know that that movement is, to put it nicely, hogwash. I can think of more accurate (laughs) words we could use to talk about their false gospel. But in this dark hour that is nevertheless the hour of Christ's glory, we see the heart of Christ. We see what is most important to Him. We see what His heart is for what He's about to do in His heart for His people whom God has given Him out of the world to save. We're going to look this morning at what Jesus prays for you. Wouldn't it be nice to know, and in fact we can know, what Jesus is praying for you? We confess every week our Lord who ascended to the right hand of the Father, who there intercedes for us, who defends us against the accusations of the devil. So what is Jesus praying? What is his heart for us? And I will tell you here that for God's people, we find nothing but encouragement as we come to the conclusion of Jesus' farewell address to his disciples, which concludes with this glorious prayer in John 17. So we're going to look at this text this morning to see, well, what does Jesus pray for you? And then how should that help orient the focus of our lives? and what we should be praying for, and what we should be concerned about. So that we are no longer blown and tossed by the waves of false teaching and the false gospels that permeate the air and are the spirit of this world, but we are guided by truth, and we're guided by hope, and a sense of joy and unity with our Lord. So we come to John 17, as I said already, we are coming to the conclusion of Jesus' farewell address to his disciples. If you turn to the inside back cover of your bulletin and we see the structure, a brief outline of the gospel, we began with the prologue and then we moved into the signs of glory, the many things Jesus did to manifest his glory in terms of signs. And now we come in chapter 13 to 20, this hour of glory, which begins with this farewell discourse. And so we're concluding the farewell discourse today with this prayer of our Lord. And then we will move into the passion and resurrection.
In each of these sections, glory has been a dominant theme of John. That's why I named this series, John, the glory of Christ. John is the gospel of glory. John uses the word glory very disproportionately compared to all the other gospel writers who have different emphases in their gospels. John wants to highlight the glory of God, the glory of Christ, and in seeing that glory that we would believe in his name. And glory takes on a dominant theme in this prayer as well. We're going to see that today, even as we understand what Jesus is doing and his glory in relationship to us as well. So we are going to look at three things this morning as we seek to understand what Jesus prays for us. So three things. The first thing we will see is that your happiness depends on Jesus's glory. Your happiness depends on Jesus's glory. We live in a very man-centered, self-centered world, don't we? We do, and it's true of every one of us more than we'd like to admit. We are by nature very self-centered. And there was a famous British missiologist named Leslie Newbegin who saw that problem as well in the evangelical church when he returned to England. I believe it was in the, the 80s when he made this observation. But he saw that evangelical, evangelicalism in England had shifted while he was gone in the mission field to focusing on the, on the glory of God to a focus on the salvation of man. And in that subtle shift, two things both being good, God's glory and man's salvation, the focus turned to the self. And God's glory became a secondary thing. So the priority got reversed. And I can tell you as a minister uh, in America that I saw many church movements and philosophies of ministry that focused on catering to the individual. To what kind of worship music do you want to hear? Do you want traditional music? Do you want country western music? Do you want jazz? Do you want rock and roll? Do you, I mean, there are churches that literally offer different styles of music so that you can go to the, the service that best fits you. And it breeds Christian consumerism. And in many ways, I got you here on a hook what Jesus prays for you because what he's most concerned about is actually his own glory. But it does come to impact you as well. But we need to keep the priorities correct. The priorities correct. I heard John Piper actually argue that that priority actually is also the difference between Lutheranism and Reformed theology. Because in Lutheranism, the first and chief doctrine is justification by faith. How are we made right with God? Which is a very important doctrine. But Reformed theology begins with the glory of God. It focuses on the glory of God. And that indeed, friends, we are most happy when God is most glorified. If I might take a spin on what John Piper might say there. But our happiness depends on Jesus' glory. And I want you to see three reasons why that is the case. 
under this header, your happiness depends on God's glory first, that Jesus must be glorified in order to give you eternal life. If Jesus is not glorified, you cannot be saved. In verses 1 and 2, Jesus, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. And he's referring to the hour of his death. The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. The very reason Jesus came to earth was to die for the people that God had given him as the good shepherd to lay his life down for the sheep. And now we are at this hour, and if Jesus does not go through with it and is not glorified by being raised from the dead and vindicated, there's no salvation for us. If God is not chiefly committed to his glory in this plan of redemption, then there's no hope for us. But because he must be glorified and is glorified in his death and resurrection, he can give life to us, to all whom you have given him. So that's the first reason why your happiness depends on Jesus' glory. Secondly, We see in verse 3 and following that Jesus must be glorified so that you can truly know God. Jesus must be glorified so that you can truly know God. Our knowledge of God is incomplete if Jesus is not glorified. So let's look at this. In verse 3, Jesus says, And this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus makes this marvelous assertion by saying that actually eternal life is bound up in knowledge. But it's not just like this academic, vague, distant knowledge. It's relational knowledge of knowing God and of knowing Christ, whom you have sent. But this knowledge is incomplete again if Jesus is not glorified. He says in verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence, and get this, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus is asking to to have his pre-incarnate glory restored to him. The glory that he has as the second person of the Trinity. And that if Jesus, if Jesus is not raised and is not glorified and it is not given that glory that is his as God, we will never fully know him. We will never fully know Jesus until we also understand and know his glory as God, as the second person of the Trinity. So your happiness depends on Jesus' glory. The first reason we looked at is Jesus must be glorified to give you eternal life. Secondly, Jesus must be glorified so you can truly know him. 
But there's also a third thing. That Jesus is also glorified by redeeming you. He's glorified by redeeming you. And as we move into verse 6 of John 17, we see this amazing thing where Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. I don't know if you caught that connection when we read Numbers 6 in Aaron's blessing, but by giving that blessing, the priests would put their name on the people of God. And here Jesus as the great high priest, which is why John 17 is sometimes called the high priestly prayer. Jesus as the great high priest has manifested the name of God to us and has given and shared that name with us. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Jesus has a family glory that he has shared with us. He has put his name on us. And by us being his people, he is glorified in us as well. So our entire hope is bound up in Jesus being glorified. Our hope of salvation, our hope of knowing God rightly, and our hope as the children of God bearing his name are all bound up in Jesus being glorified in his death and resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And as we confess from thence, he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. But that is why our happiness depends on Jesus' glory. Do you ever hear the word of faith preachers talking about that? I haven't. I think we hardly hear it enough even from faithful churches and preachers and pulpits. We need to focus on this kind of stuff. If we want to be happy, let's focus on the glory of God. If you want to find happiness in 2022, devote yourself to the study of the glory of God. So, what does Jesus pray for you first? He, we've learned in relationship to that, that your happiness depends on Jesus' glory. Now let's focus to the content of Jesus' prayer for you. And a second point here, your, we will see here in these verses that your security and sanctification is Jesus' primary concern for you. Your security and your sanctification. And we'll flesh both of these things out. These are Jesus' primary concerns for you. You know, what a, what a parent uh, thinks is a priority for a child and what a child thinks is a priority, 
um, are often different. Whether that's screen time, <laughs> as our kids ask for screen time, uh, or uh, whether that's what would be good to eat right now, right? Or what we should be doing. They're often different. But here we see the heart of our Savior and our Lord in what is his primary concern for us and what should be our primary concern when we pray and in this world. And so let's look at these two things together under the header, your security and sanctification is Jesus' primary concern for you. First, Jesus prays for your security in a hostile world. So we see here particularly particularly in verses 14 and 15. He prays for your security in a hostile world. You know, Christians are killed in this world. Christians are maligned in this world. Christians lose their job because of their faith in this world. Christians see their families split and divided and estranged because of their faith. In this world. And there are many allures that would seek to lead us astray from Christ in this world. So Jesus prays, starting in the second half of verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Here we get this idea of name again. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. We saw last time that Jesus bound up the world's hatred um, with our election. Because we are elect, the world hates us. Because God chose us. And the reality of that is because of that, we do not belong to this world at all. Yes, we walk on the streets and we go to the grocery store and we, we eat apples and you know we break bread and we go to work and we drive and we climb to the top of mountains and, uh, and do all these things. But this isn't our world. And that's why the world hates us. And Jesus acknowledges that and intercedes for us in this final prayer. Verse 14, I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. The reason the world calls evil good and good evil is because they hate God and they hate his word. And when we hold it up, they hate us too. Jesus said the world hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I have given them your word and the world has hated them. And moreover than that, Jesus turns now to the prince of the power of this air, of the heirs, to the devil himself. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus here is doing something 
that the prosperity preachers would never do. They would tell you that God's will for you is to be happy and that God's will for you is to never suffer. They would say it would never be God's will that you would suffer. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is, is saying, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, this world that hates them, but that you keep them from the evil one. So he's praying that our hearts and souls will be guarded for the day of Christ, the day of his return, and that the enemy would not devour us, an enemy that's described as a lion prowling around seeking someone to devour. Are there lions in Kenya? Yeah, <clears throat> lions are feared creatures because they prowl around seeking someone to devour. And Jesus knows that, and he knows there's going to be wolves. Outside the church and even inside the church, Paul tells the Ephesian elders, wolves will come from your midst. There will be false teachers that rise up even from the leadership of the church. And Jesus does not ask that God would deliver us from these things that plague us as the people of God. But he asks that the Father would keep us from the devil, from the evil one. So when we think about how should we pray, one of the most important things we can pray is that the Lord would protect his church, that the Lord would keep us from the evil one. We pray that for ourselves and for spouses and children and for church members. Because let me tell you, as a pastor, I know, uh, whatever you tell me, I keep in confidence and I've been a pastor a pretty long time, and my father-in-law's back here. He's been a pastor for a longer time than me. You know that the devil is out for you guys. And we need to care for each other. When, when members aren't coming to church, we need to reach out to them because the devil is seeking to single them out and then devour them, just like a lion hives off a weakling in the flock to eat them. If you want to have a profound and meaningful prayer life, devote yourself to praying at all times, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, talking about the spiritual battle, for all the saints. Praying for protection. Jesus' concern to the Father is your security in a hostile world. But we also see here, secondly, under this banner of your security and sanctification is Jesus' primary concern for you, that Jesus prays for your sanctification in the truth of God's word. Jesus prays for your sanctification in the truth of God's word. Look there in verse 17, where Jesus says, Sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. I mentioned last week what John Owen said about the devil's tactics to knock the church off of the foundation of Christ. He does it either through force or fraud. Force or fraud. We essentially get that here in this high priestly prayer, where in verses 14 and 15, Jesus is talking about force. Keep them from the evil one. In verse 17, we also, this is another tactic, technically the evil one, but to get to us through fraud, through twisting scripture, through twisting the preaching and the proclamation of truth. 
And so Jesus says, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. If we want to be guarded and protected against the schemes of the enemy and the alluring hostilities of the world, which is constantly calling us to just, just come on, just eat the apple. Just join me in the world. It's constantly, we're getting that every minute on the internet and in, in, on TV and in the world. You just, you just walk out the door and it's there. Come on, come over here. Come enjoy my wares. If we want to keep from being reeds blown and tossed by the wind of false doctrine and heresy and the death that is all the world can offer, We must be sanctified in truth, and that truth is in the word of God. And last week we saw one of the main roles of the Spirit will be to, as Jesus said, to lead the disciples, his disciples, into all truth who will be the ones, the primary ones composing the New Testament and giving us Jesus' word in written and errant and final form. If we want to be people who are reformed, which is kind of a, in some circles, a cool thing to say. In other circles, not, yeah, I'm reformed. I'm reformed. Then we must be people of the word of God. John Calvin noted, I've said this a number of times in this series, John Calvin noted that the problem in the Reformation was seen and illustrated very well in two areas. The Roman Catholic Church placed the Pope's authority over Scripture. So the Catholic Church says the Word of God is the inerrant, inspired Word of God. Same thing we confess. But they placed the Pope over it and the apostolic, what they call apostolic or papal tradition, the magisterium is the word they use, above scripture and they have new traditions that they say are God's will as as well and they add new doctrines like purgatory and the worship of Mary and and all sorts of other things. Uh, Whole systems by which we can somehow make ourselves right with God, they say. All of that is added and placed over scripture. But they also saw in one of the reforming groups as well in the Anabaptists that they put inner revelation above scripture. So that they, they confessed the word of God too, but actually what God told them in here took supremacy. And both of those things are a denial of the supremacy of the word of God as the ultimate source of truth. If you want to be a reformed person, you need to be sanctified fully, completely, exclusively by the truth of the word of God. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So in this message so far, we've seen, number one, that your happiness depends on Jesus' glory. And number two, that your security and sanctification is Jesus' primary concern for you. And if we want to pray like Jesus, we will pray for the protection of our brothers and sisters. And we will seek to sanctify each other in the truth of the word. And, and I hope that every time we gather, you say, Preacher, give me the word of God. I don't want to hear your words. I want to hear the word of God. And that should be our expectation. And I pray that you are always people that want to hear the word of God. 
even when it cuts and when it's hard to hear. But we end on a high note as Jesus concludes his prayer. And this is the third thing we will see today. Is that the outcome of Jesus' prayer is your union and communion with God in glory and love. That was kind of a long header. Let me repeat it. The outcome of Jesus' prayer is your union and communion with God in glory and love. So everything Jesus has done thus far and is asking the Father to glorify him and in praying for your protection and sanctification is, leads to something. It leads to an end. All of this is for a purpose. And that purpose is for your experience of your union with God and your communion with God in two primary things, in glory and in love. So let's look at these two things. Let's first, let's look at your union and communion with God in glory. What does that mean? Your union and communion with God in glory. Jesus says in verse 20 and following, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So Jesus has been praying for his disciples and saying, there's also going to be others, and I'm praying for them too. So that those things we just looked at are not just prayers for the 12 disciples or the 11 at this point, because Judas walked away, but also for us. But then he goes on, he says, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me And now here's the important point here. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Remember that glory that we said was so important to your happiness, Jesus' glory? This is a glory that he will share with us and has shared with us. He says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. What is this idea of glory? I mean, this is deep theology. I was talking to um, Rob, my father-in-law this week. I mean, you could write books and books and books and spend a lifetime just studying the theology of John 17. And in fact, in many ways, it's a crescendo in the symphony of the whole gospel, if you will, of tying together all these themes that have been laid out in the gospel. They're coming back here in John 17. And we have this idea of Jesus sharing his glory with mortal people like you and me. God sharing his glory. C.S. Lewis talked about the glory of God and the weight of glory, an essay of his, which I highly recommend. And he talked about glory in the sense of fame and in the sense of illuminosity, which is the, the phrase that he used. But glory in the sense that we will be, we are known as gods. This is the fame of God will be our fame 
on the day when we are raised from the dead and are vindicated. Jesus is vindicated before the world when he's raised from the dead. And we will be vindicated with him when we are raised from the dead on the last day and are seen as his. And that glory he shares with us. Likewise, we have this idea of a luminosity. To, that's, a very, I think, a very Lewis-like kind of word, like a light bulb going bing. But we can also think of glory as the spiritual and the physical and perfect heavenly unity, having glorified bodies. When Jesus was raised from the dead, you know, and the disciples were in that room, the door was locked, Jesus didn't need to knock and wait for them to unlock the door. He just passed through the wall and appeared to them. He was more real than the wall. His glorified body was more real. Lewis picks up on this idea in the great divorce when um, the blades of grass were too hard for the people to step on it, hurt their feet. Jesus is more real. In our glorified state, we will be more real. It will be something more than mere physicality or mere ephemeral spirituality. It will be these glorified spiritual bodies. And that is what Jesus will share with us on the day of resurrection. We have this union and communion with God in glory. That is just, our minds can barely kind of get around that. And it's not in such a way that ever removes the distinction between the creator and creature. We're not, this is not Eastern mysticism where we just kind of blend into God and into nothingness. We will always be creatures, but there is a family glory, a family glory that Jesus shares with us that we experience in part now and will experience in fullness on the day of resurrection. That's the outcome of Jesus' prayer, our union and communion with God in glory. And secondly, the outcome is also our union and communion with God in love. In love. These three remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. Jesus goes on and concludes his prayer, saying, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Everything that Jesus did can be summarized by love. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. And that was Jesus' errand on earth to manifest the love of the Father to those whom the Father gave him from the world. You know, a lot of people see election as a dividing doctrine. 
But election is actually the most encouraging of all doctrines because at the heart of election is love. It is love. That's why we should be known as people who love because that is at the heart of what Jesus did. That's at the heart of the plan that was forged in stone before the foundation of the world. In love, Paul says, he predestined us for adoption. That's why Paul says the greatest of these is faith, hope, and love. But, well, there, there remains faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Everything Jesus did, becoming man, suffering all the humiliations that we deserve, emptying himself, taking the form of a servant, becoming obedient to death, all of that, all of the sin and misery that he took upon himself was done out of love and that we might experience the love of God and commune with him in the love of God. Everything Jesus did so that we could be united to him, commune with him in glory and love. These ideas of union and communion are very loaded theological concepts and ones that the uh, church theologians throughout the ages have wrestled with. But when I talk about union, I talk about the fact that we are united to Christ in his death and resurrection. It's the thing we celebrate in the sacraments, that his, his death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. We're united to him by the Spirit. And then when we talk about communion, we're talking about the experience, the relational experience that we have, communing with God. And of these primary things, it's glory and love. And the, the, uh, the early church fathers wrestled with this idea. You've, we've seen it several times in this text. I in them and you in me, that we may be perfectly one. What does it mean that... Jesus, God's in us and we're in God. You know, how can God be in us and us be in God and there be this perfect unity? It's, it's like a, it's a um, what's, what's the geometrical like puzzle, isn't it? Like how does this work? And the church fathers use this idea of perichoresis, which is this idea of this dance, that there's this, there's this communion, this fellowship, this dance that we have of experience, uh, experiencing the love and the glory of God and sharing that and fellowshipping in that together. It is like a, a dance and one that we will, that will gloriously never end and we'll never tire of. This unity that we have. Well, if what Jesus prays is correct, and it is, then we can clearly see that what so many false teachers and charlatans claiming to speak for God today is false. And if we want to experience prosperity, it's got to be under God's terms. If we want to experience happiness, we should center our lives on the glory of God. 
and the glory of Christ and delighting in those things. If we want to experience happiness now, if we want to have our best life now, then we will focus on praying for one another in the midst of the spiritual battle. And we will focus on being sanctified by the word of God. These things never come out of the mouths of these false teachers who claim to tell you what prosperity is. If we want to experience happiness in this life, let's rejoice in glory in our union and communion with God in glory and in love and all that it means now and all that it will mean. World without end on the day of resurrection. I want to end then this message with uh, kind of a next step for you. If you want to learn more, I would encourage you to study our own theology that we profess as a church. William, I think it was just yesterday, you asked me a question, William. Do you remember? What is the chief end of man? What is it? That's right. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Think about these things, my friends. And also, if you want to study more about what our union and communion with God and glory and in grace means, I would encourage you to read Westminster Larger Catechism, questions 83, 86, and 90. We have this great theology found there about what is our communion with Christ in glory. And they distinguish that from our communion with him in grace, which has to do with things like justification, adoption, sanctification. But then they ask, what is our communion with Christ in glory in this life, after death, and at the day of judgment? So how do we commune with with Christ in glory now? How do we commune with Christ in glory after we die? And then how will we commune with Christ in glory at the day of judgment? And I want to read this last one to you by way of closing this message. And the question is, what shall be done? Westminster Larger Catechism, question 90. What shall be done to the righteous at the day of judgment? And the answer is, at the day of judgment, the righteous being caught up to Christ in the clouds shall be set on his right hand and there openly acknowledged and acquitted, shall join with him in judging, in the judging of reprobate angels and men, and shall be received into heaven, where they shall be fully and forever freed from all sin and misery, filled with inconceivable joys, made perfectly holy and happy both in body and soul in the company of innumerable saints and holy angels, but especially in the immediate vision and fruition of God the Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, and of the Holy Spirit to all eternity. And this is the perfect and full communion which the members of the invisible church shall enjoy with Christ in glory at the resurrection day of judgment. There's a lot of theology and a lot of scripture attached to these statements I just read, and I would commend it to you for your joy 
and your meditation as you begin this new year and seek to center your life and prioritize your life on the priorities of God. So may the Lord bless you in this new year, my friends, and keep you. And may he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.